Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Five days after the end of the Second World War, Winston Churchill took to the airwaves and made a famous speech to the world. Broadcast over the BBC World Service, he talked about Britain's experience in the war and the difficulties the British people had endured. However, a constant theme in the speech was the policy pursued by the government of Eamon de Valera in the Irish Free State. Back in 1939, they had declared neutrality and outwardly at least had stuck rigidly to this policy, refusing to pick one side or the other. This would even see Eamon de Valera, the Taoiseach of the day, visit the German legation in Dublin to pass on official condolences when it emerged Hitler had committed suicide at the end of the war. Lambasting their position, Churchill proclaimed neutrality had, and I quote, left the de Valera government to frolic with the German representatives to their heart's content. The reality of Irish neutrality in the Second World War was, however, as you might expect, far more complicated. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Donald O'Driscoll from the History Department of University College Cork. Donald has written extensively on the issue of neutrality, and he reveals why Ireland took a neutral position in the war and how this was a matter of tactics rather than ideology. He also explains how this led to a somewhat strange situation where the government aided the Allies behind the scenes, but imposed extreme censorship to create the perception that the Free State was neutral. As you are about to hear, there's a lot more to this story than simply declaring neutrality and staying out of the war. Before we dive into this fascinating topic, if this is your first time tuning in, my name is Finn DeWire and this is the Irish History Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to the show to get the next episode. Finally, if you're a supporter of the podcast, you now have access to the first episode in my exclusive series on the Irish Civil War that's only available over on Patreon or Acast+. If you haven't yet subscribed... For just €5 a month, you can listen to the Civil War series along with the huge back catalogue of exclusive Irish history content available only for supporters. This includes a series on the story of the Black Death in Ireland, bonus shows on the Great Hunger and the War of Independence. 
And you can support the show and get all this content today at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. Just to say, there won't be an episode next week because of the bank holiday, but I'll be back the week after. Now, let's turn the clock back to 1939. The storm clouds of war are building in Europe, and to begin, I asked Donald where Ireland's position of neutrality originated. Did it have deep roots in our history? Yeah, I mean, there's there's various debates amongst historians regarding the the neutral tradition or whether Ireland did have a neutral tradition sort of before the Second World War, if you know what I mean. Now, there's no doubt that that it was the Second World War when the policy was originated, when it was first activated. But certain people, you know, Ronan Fanning and Patrick Keating and others who've written on this have kind of argued that there was a, a kind of a predilection towards neutrality in Irish nationalism pre-independence and in Irish policy post-independence. Others would would challenge that and really the evidence the evidence is pretty flimsy i think you know we have james Connolly's irish neutrality league obviously we have the the whole opposition to conscription in 1918 we have the the opposition to the boer war and so on but you know they they can just as easily be seen as anti-british if you like or anti you know directly anti-imperialist sort of factors so the idea of, of new irish neutrality didn't feature in the treaty debates for example or in the treaty negotiations you know, it wasn't asserted as as a policy in the 1920s by coming a Gael. So even though there's occasional sort of nods towards and that maybe we should take a sort of a neutral position, really, it's only with the collapse of collective security, I think, in, you know, with the demise of the League of Nations in 1935-36, that de Valera for the first time declares we want to be neutral. And that really becomes a, a practical and achievable state policy then in 1938 with the return of the treaty ports under the Anglo-Irish sort of agreement of that year. Because before that, of course, the, the ports of Loch Swilly and, and Cove and Bearhaven were under British naval control. So there's absolutely no way that Ireland could have been neutral in any war that broke out if the British still control those ports. So it then became an achievable policy. De Valera sort of stated in 1938 that, you know, in what's considered to be a statement of, of Irish aspirations towards neutrality that we want to be neutral but it was highly qualified i have the quote here he says assuming other things were equal if there was any chance of our neutrality in general being possible we would probably say that we want to remain neutral i do not know that you can follow that up by saying in any war but in general our desire would be for neutrality as far as possible now that's hardly a kind of a unequivocal statement of you know um, principled neutrality and he made it very clear that we that our neutrality, it, and as it came to being in 1939, that our neutrality was not theoretical or abstract in any way, that it was a case of, we want to stay out of this war. So as Donald explained, while neutrality might have roots in Irish nationalism, it wasn't ideological in the 1930s. So this leads us to the question, why did Ireland remain neutral then in the Second World War? When the war breaks out, there's a whole sort of range of, of factors, I think, influencing the decision to, to declare our neutrality or non-belligerence. And, you know, they're both practical and symbolic, really. So, I mean, in practical terms, it, it kind of made sense. Most people don't want to be involved in a war, you know, if you can avoid it. That's the first thing. Ireland didn't have any kind of imperialist or strategic interests that were under attack or threatened by, you know, by, by the war itself, by German expansionism or otherwise. It was less than 20 years since the end of the Civil War and the War of Independence. So, you know, the divisions within Irish society, this kind of 
the trust in British intentions, the, the, the memories of the black and tans and British atrocities, you know, all of these things. And of course, the continuing continuation of partition, all of these things would have influenced the political class and, and public opinion in, sen in the sense of, you know, do we want to join a war on, on Britain's side? Do we want to fight with the black and tans? Essentially, of course not. So that wasn't an option, really, in domestic political terms. Uh, it would have created much too much division. There was fear that there would be a civil war, another civil war in Ireland if Ireland joined the war, you know, on the British side. The IRA still were active. They'd actually declared their support for Germany in some, in, in, in a kind of a, in some senses. They had declared war on Britain in the summer of 1939 before the actual war broke out and, you know, launched bombing campaigns and so on. And the IRA was still capable of mobilizing emotional sort of uh, responses in, in Irish political life. So there was a fear that, you know, joining the war on the British side would provoke, you know, possible civil war. Joining the Germans, the, the Axis would, was just impractical. And I mean, it, it simply wouldn't have been possible and wouldn't have had any support outside a tiny group of sort of extreme right wing nationalists, you know. So for all those practical reasons, it made total sense to declare neutrality. And then symbolically, it was a chance for Ireland to, to, to sort of declare its sovereignty, its independence from Britain on the world stage and actually sort of say, look, we, we can exist as an independent state. We don't have to follow Britain and everything she does. So, you know, the, for, all those, for all those practical and symbolic reasons, neutrality was declared at the, at the outbreak of war and, and maintained right to the bitter end in 1945. While the government chose to remain neutral, I asked Donald how the wider public reacted to this move. Understanding this is tricky, as Donald explains. Well, it's very hard to judge in the sense that there was a censorship. We'll, we'll talk about censorship in a moment, I'm sure, but that there was a censorship system that was extreme. That was probably the most, outside of, in democratic countries, the, the most extreme censorship system in any democratic country that set out to neutralise, as I call it, Irish public opinion on the war in order to, to, to bolster support for neutrality policy. As the war goes on, there's um, increasing, obviously, propaganda is seeping through, despite the, the censorship net. News of the, you know, German atrocities and so on later on is beginning to influence people and maybe making them question, to some extent, the policy. But that is totally outweighed, I think, by the, again, by the practical and symbolic advantages that we've already sort of talked about. We didn't have opinion polls, but we had uh, two general elections, for example, during the war, both of which Fianna Fáil won. All of the political parties, without exception, supported neutrality. The, the press in general, while they resented not being able to express opinions on the war, nevertheless believed that neutrality was the most practical and obvious policy to pursue, even the Irish Times, which would have supported um, the Allies and Britain in the war, but nevertheless believed that neutrality was a sensible policy. And when we have, we have intelligence reports from the British, from the Germans, from the Americans, as the war goes on, where they are, you know, gauging public opinion, they all overwhelmingly state that that neutrality was popularly supported by the vast majority of the people. So it seems that, you know, the, that, that any opposition that did exist was was quite isolated and uh, wasn't given a chance to develop anyway by the by the very repressive nature of the state at the time, you know. Declaring neutrality is one thing, but implementing it was another matter entirely. Donal explains how the Irish government enacted its policy of neutrality. There's no such thing as, as perfect neutrality. There's no such thing as pure neutrality. It doesn't, it doesn't exist. So the, the five neutrals that survived to the end of the war, Ireland, 
Spain, Portugal, Sweden, Switzerland, all of them to some extent uh, were compromised in terms of their neutrality. So they're, they, they, you know, as, as Joe Lee, the historian, put it, all neutrals are neutral for the side that threatens them most. So, you know, for Switzerland, for Sweden, they would have been, they would have had shown a certain consideration for Germany, of course, because Germany threatened the most. Ireland was probably threatened most by Britain in the sense that Britain would have taken over Ireland if it needed to, right? Um, so we cooperated at an extensive level, but at a secret level with the Allies, with Britain, and then with Britain and America. We supplied them with meteorological information. We supplied them with intelligence. We released their their pilots when they crash landed in Ireland and repatriate them, where we, we interned the Germans. And we allowed overflights in Donegal, an air corridor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So like, we now know from, from the material that's emerged post-war that Ireland was extremely partial towards the Allies. So it wasn't, you know, it was this, this sort of purest neutrality that we presented to the world and to the Irish people was actually, you know, it, it was false, essentially. So Ireland, despite the, the, the symbolic importance of neutrality for us, we, had to, we secretly had to make sure that the Allies won the war, and we did that with full cooperation. You know, this is a reality. It's what, what again, Joe Lee, to quote him, calls a double gain, the idea that we give the Allies as much through cooperation as they would gain through conquest. So we make sure that they don't actually invade us and take over the ports, and we make sure that, you know, our benevolent neutrality is actually to their benefit. So the, the British military intelligence and American intelligence and the military authorities were very happy with Ireland's benevolent neutrality. It meant that Ireland didn't have to be defended, it meant that, you know, they could continue to get what they wanted in terms of intelligence, information and news of, you know, um, German U-boats and anything we could give them. And it also meant then that the hundreds of thousands of Irish who would have had to be conscripted had Ireland joined the war could now go to Britain and work the war economy, for example. <laughs> So, you know, across a whole range of areas, Ireland's sort of benevolent, sort of secret or, you know, benevolent neutrality, if we call it that, was to the benefit of the Allies. And then, you know, censorship is used to pretend this isn't happening, to cover that and to say, you know, we are the most neutral country that ever existed. We're so neutral that de Valera will go and visit Edward Hempel, the German minister in Ireland, and the death of Hitler and offer his condolences on behalf of the Irish people. You know, that's the the sort of high point of the absurdity, really, of this of this situation. Because neutrality becomes less a policy than, I would argue, than a dogma, really, especially after 1942. Because after 1942, the, the logic of neutrality as a security policy is really diminished. The war, the focus of the war shifts east. Ireland is not really under any real threat. And it could easily have jumped on the Allied bandwagon, for example, and offered a lot more support to the Allies if it wanted to, but it didn't. Because at this stage, I think, neutrality had become almost a dogma. It wasn't a policy. We're going to stick to this to the bitter end. And it was so important to Fianna Fáil's kind of domestic project that, that you know, they were going to stick to to the end. And, and censorship sort of really copper fastened that kind of mentality. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not the kind of, you know, we can look at it in all sorts of different ways. We can be critical of Ireland for not doing enough. We can also be critical of Ireland for doing too little. The idea of neutrality as as a sort of some kind of pure and good policy really is is not not at the races, which isn't to say that neutrality isn't a good thing and which isn't to say that, you know, the, the adherence of the state to neutrality subsequently in terms of the formation of NATO, in terms of all the things that develop subsequently, you know, 
it's useful, it's good, it's a positive thing, I would argue, that, that Ireland didn't become part of any military alliance, that, you know, the more countries that declare neutrality and don't become part of military alliances, then the better for everybody. So even though it was a compromised policy and a contingent policy and a, a flawed policy in many ways during the war in the longer term, you know, maybe it's no bad thing that it's such a part of Irish sort of political culture, you know, that we should that we should stick to it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. While it may have been aiding the Allies, the government was adamant they would maintain the outward perception Ireland was, in fact, neutral. This saw them institute an extremely strict censorship policy. When we turned to discuss this, Donald first explained the government's thinking on the matter before outlining the censorship regime, which was one of the strictest in Europe. Because Ireland was militarily defenceless, essentially, there was a, 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 a belief that, that the best way Ireland could defend itself was to make sure that it presented itself as neutral, that it wasn't on one side or the other, that it wasn't going to... to um, provoke or give any due cause, as they said, to either side to interfere with, with Irish neutrality or to interfere with the state's sovereignty. So one way of doing that was to sort of neutralise, as I say, as I said already, Irish public opinion to make sure that Irish newspapers or media outlets uh, didn't become a sounding board for propaganda for either side, you know, that the Irish would be impeccably neutral in, in every way, that Irish public wouldn't veer towards one side or the other and that involved then having to sort of basically suppress all reports of atrocities to sort of put put a blanket over the the, the holocaust as it emerged in the final solution and the nazi atrocities to give equal weight to reports from either side in terms of this is what the germans said happened this is what the allies said happened to eliminate all propagandist films to get rid of newsreels for example so newsreels were a very important propaganda form, of course, and a, a way of, of propagating one side's view. So we were part of the UK and American system. So all the newsreels we would have got would have been from Gaumont and the others who were um, and, and Pate and so on. And those newsreels were very much the, you know, the, the classic ones that we see from the Second World War. You know, dun here's the, you know, the great stories of, of, of Allied victories and all of that. In Ireland, we the we just said you're not going to have we're not going to have those newsreels you can't do them so they were a very important part of their their system so they actually made special irish newsreels from 1939 to 1942 until until it wasn't economically viable to do it anymore and these newsreels portrayed an entirely different world to the world that was seen by our british neighbors for example to give you a sense of how censorship worked in ireland during the second world war Donald provided this example of a newsreel from 1940. 
in mid-May 1940, in the week which saw the arrival of the Dutch government as refugees in London and the bombing of Rotterdam and Canterbury, Gaumont British News, which was the largest circulation newsreel in Ireland and the UK, featured in its Irish edition the following, the New York World Fair, US polo stars playing for charity, a fete in Seville in Spain, a carnival in Zurich, the opening of baseball match in the US, and torrential floods in storms in America. And of course, the Pope proclaiming a saint in Rome. You always have to throw the Pope in, in any of these ones. So that was the, that's how the Irish were seeing the world in, in May 1940 in, in the cinemas. With this level of censorship, I asked Donald if Irish people had any real understanding of the wider course of the war that was playing out in Europe. They did, they did, because the, like British newspapers continued to circulate. So you have this strange situation. No, a number of them, they, they, there were a number of seizures, a number of bannings of British papers, but all of those seizures and bannings related to the newspapers casting doubt on Irish neutrality. None of it had to do with the actual propaganda, the propaganda content. Now, what happened as the war moves on, as it went to even 41, as early as 41, uh, newsprint shortages, transport difficulties, all of that meant like a massive reduction in the number of papers circulating in Ireland. So from hundreds of thousands of British newspapers in 1939, you're down to about 20,000 by 1941. So that's much less effective. You also have radio, of course. You have, uh, you know, we all know about Lord Ha Ha and all of that coming in, but you have BBC. You know, everyone doesn't have a radio and it's before rural electrification, there's shortage of batteries and so on. But still, a, a significant number of people, especially in the cities, do have access to radio. And so they're listening to radio propaganda. They're tuning in. You know, Gareth Fitzgerald used to speak about, you know, listening to the BBC and following the war that way on his radio. But the authorities weren't too bothered about that. What the important thing for them was that Irish newspapers and Irish radio didn't become a forum for either side. So even the Irish newspapers were reporting on the course of the war. Now, not in a way that, you know, was without colour or without embellishment, but nevertheless, they did report that, you know, the Germans have advanced here, the Allies have advanced there, you know, this victory, that victory, this city has taken, that city has taken. So in terms of the bare bones of the, the narrative of the war, yes, people did know. In terms of the detail of atrocities, of concentration camps, of bombings of, you know, of Dresden, of whatever you want to call it, you know, that wasn't there. That was that was taken out. So you create a moral distance. I mean, that was the idea. And you create a kind of a, you know, it's almost abstract. And so even though the war is going on, it's going on in the distance. And, and it's not just physically distant, but sort of morally distant. And that was that's what they were setting out to achieve. In light of this, then, I asked Donald if the support for neutrality among the Irish public was in effect a manufactured consent in that the government led people to this view by censoring their understanding of the wider war. Absolutely. That's a, that's exactly right. I think that's what I did. That's what I say, sort of censorship is propaganda, I call it in one article I wrote, where, you know, the censorship operates as a almost form of negative propaganda for Irish neutrality and for the very particular nature of Irish neutrality. And of course, then it becomes imbued with a kind of um, moral superiority almost, you know, we're not just outside this conflict, we're above it. The, all sides are equally bad. So you have people like Frank Aiken, who's the minister in charge of, of censorship, Jerry Boland, who is the minister for justice, both saying in interviews many, many years later in the 1960s and 1970s, sure, they were both as bad as each other. 
look at look at the Katyn Forest, for example, where the, the the Russians murdered tens of thousands of Polish officers. We knew about that, and that you know that 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 was as bad as anything the Nazis did. Look at uh, Dresden, the bombing of Dresden. Look at uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And you know, Ger Boland said in the, in the 1960s, um, the the Allies are some cheek trying the the Nazis for war crimes when they were responsible for this sort of stuff. So it was this sort of idea that that all they were all equally bad. There was the dominant idea, of course, that the British were the worst of all, and always would be, and always were. And, and you know, the, because of Irish experience of, of British imperialism and colonialism, the world was often seen through those through that lens, through the lens of you know the the British. The British are as bad. Nobody could be worse than the British, or godless Russia, for that matter. So perfidious Albion, godless Russia, the Nazis and Japanese. Okay, whatever. They're just part of the league. Yeah, I mean, there was very much a kind of, as you say, a manufacturing of consent, a neutralization of opinion, at the creation of a kind of, um, I suppose, uh, a moral distance to to underpin this policy, which, as we said at the outset, was really a pragmatic one in many ways, but becomes almost a, a, a kind of a, a dogma and and suits the, the political purposes of, of Fianna Fáil in particular. Given the full nature of Nazi atrocities were only revealed at the end of the conflict when censorship was lifted, I asked Donal if the Irish public shifted their view on the government's policy of neutrality in light of this. No, I mean, I think that once the war ends, there was massive relief that, that Ireland had survived, right? And that, that, you know, we hadn't been attacked, we hadn't been invaded, we, we weren't really affected. When, when Churchill launched his famous attack on Irish neutrality at the war's end, and this gave De Valera a perfect opportunity to reply in his famous broadcast reply, which was published in the Irish press and published as a pamphlet where he sort of said, you know, you have some cheek, you know, criticizing us and, and so on and so forth. So people had sort of took great pride in that. And there was really, as the news of the hot in the immediate aftermath of the lifting of censorship, um, suddenly the newspapers were filled and the, the cinemas were filled with reports of the Holocaust, of the concentration camps, of the liberation of the camps. And people sort of turned a blind eye in many ways. They sort of said, oh, that's terrible, but it's all over now. Or they said, that's all British propaganda. We don't believe the half of it. You know, all of that kind of thing. And people, it was a very isolated country and and our neutrality and our censorship in that period and, you know, the the cultural censorship on top of it sort of strengthened that isolationist sort of mindset. Ireland was very much cut off and, you know, we weren't allowed into the United Nations until 1955, as you know. So that was partly because the, the Soviets actually said, you know, Irish neutrality was effectively pro-Axis and we shouldn't allow them in. You know, we were excluded from most martial aid, for example. You know, we weren't part of the kind of post-war sort of Pax, Pax Americana. And our isolation then sort of, you know, kind of, I think, deepened deepened that distance that was there from the the kind of moral issues of of the war itself neutrality becomes something different then as we move on as the cold war develops and especially then as frank aiken in his role as as of uh, minister for external affairs or foreign affairs in the 1950s sort of takes a very progressive kind of anti-colonial position within the united nations supporting the admission of red china supporting the non-proliferation pacts, you know, the non-aligned movements, Yugoslavia and all of that, and, and sort of saying, you know, 
the development of these two military blocks in the world is not to the benefit of, of humanity or, or peace in the longer term. So Irish neutrality takes on a kind of a more progressive and positive spin then in the 50s, you know, and as we move on, as we move forward, I mean, that wasn't shared by everyone in the political class, of course. Sean Lamass famously said, there is no such thing as neutrality. We are not neutral. We want to join the EC. We want to become part of the Western camp. Sean McBride said, we will join NATO, but not until partition is gone. So it wasn't, you know, the, this idea of a principled adherence neutrality in the Irish political class. It was, it continued to be contingent and contested. And, you know, we very clearly and gradually became part of the Western camp. There's no doubt about it. We we didn't join NATO, but we facilitated NATO. Once we joined the EEC and the EU develops its defensive dimensions, then we come part of that. But classic Irish ambiguity continues. We pretend that we're neutral, uh, just as we pretended we were neutral during the Second World War, but we're not really. But the majority of Irish people continue to support neutrality, you know, in recent opinion polls. So I, I think there's a continuation, really, of that sort of gap between what the political elites are are doing, both with the policy as a, as a kind of a as a symbol, what the, the, the public actually believes, and to what extent that's, you know, a positive or a negative thing. I mean, that's a question for, of, of, of democracy and so on. But certainly what's happening at the, at the moment is it's quite clear that we're not neutral, given our you know, our support for the, the, the for for NATO policies, essentially, our facilitation of American military in Shannon. You know, we could we there's a whole long list of that. And as I say, I think it, it I think it goes back to the the kind of to the sham really of of Irish neutrality during the Second World War, if you like. You know what I mean? The the, the gap between reality and maybe it's raison d'etat, and maybe it's pragmatic, and maybe it makes sense, and it's justifiable. You know, but you know, we don't have to sort of, do we really have to pretend? And those of us who support neutrality and think neutrality is a good idea, I think, you know, have no choice but to, but to sort of say, we must maintain this neutrality, but but what we do is if we give it actual real shape in a progressive, anti-imperialist, anti-militarist way, let's put it in the constitution. It was never put in the constitution. Why not put it in the constitution? You know, let, let's make it real. It does, it's history can be, can be tainted and flawed, but that doesn't mean it's it's not something that we can create as a, as a good thing going into the, going into the future. I want to thank Donald for his time in what was a great discussion. Given next week is a bank holiday, there's going to be no episode, but I'll be back the week after. Until then, Sloan. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.